Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we continue with our series in the second half of American history with podcast number 19. This will be the podcast in which we begin the coverage of World War One. Podcast number 18, however, more or less set up the frame of mind of the frames of mind of world leaders heading into the 20th century, heading in to the 1900s. What we looked at in the 18th podcast was the imperial ambitions, which we were continuing from the 17th podcast, looking at America's involvement in creating the Panama Canal. We explored the Roosevelt Corollary, the Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. And then we ended by looking at the two theories in international relations about why world leaders either tend to get along with one another and cooperate or tend to go to war with one another, being the two schools, one of them being dollar diplomacy, also known as the theory of complex interdependence, which seeks influence through investment, not brawn and bullets. And then the theory of realism that more or less states that if I have the bullets, I own the influence. If I have the hardware, the military hardware, I can get the type of cooperation that I want. So those are the two extreme opposites, but the theories of international relations as we head in now to begin our coverage of World War I. Mind you, I'm calling it World War I because by and large, nobody is left over from that generation that remembers it for what it was originally known for over two decades, which was the Great War. It was the Great War with the slogan, the war to end all wars, simply because, or very just the opposite of simply, it's very tragically sad, reason that the human carnage, violence, and murder that we're going to see will be on a scale that was never witnessed before in all of human history. So World War I, again, I'm going to go back with it because that's what it becomes known only when we sadly get into the next global conflict, of course, that being World War II, starting on September 1st, 1939. So World War I, again, as I said, I'll use that term from here on out, largely is the years from 1914 to 1920. Most historians will say it ended in 1918. Yes, that's when the conflict ended. But for purposes of our podcast that we're studying American history, we were wrapping the war up for an additional two years, as was Europe, after the guns silenced in the armistice that was signed in November of 1918. So the origins of the Great War itself is that they were protective alliances. This was setting up the foundation of the Great War. And what I mean by that is that the protective alliances, there was two of them. There was the Triple Entente, which
which is the French word for agreement. And the Triple Entente consisted of the three major European powers. It's easiest, of course, if you have a map on this, but for purposes in terms of explaining it through a podcast, the three countries were Great Britain, France, and Russia. And again, if you look at the map, you can see that there's clearly some benefits there in the fact that Russia and France are squeezing in on one another. And in the sense of the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, and the Italians, which were the Triple Alliance powers. Looking at a map or just go in Google and type in 1914 map of World War One, and you would see the colors of the two different alliances. So the benefit is that Great Britain, France, and Russia can put the squeeze on the central powers or the uh, triple alliance powers. But in the same token, that's also their weakness because they're separated. Yes, France and Britain have one another back, their backs, but Russia's on the other side of the continent. Likewise, the triple alliance with Germany, the Austro-Hungarians, and Italy, yes, they have that same lines of communication, supply lines all intact, but they also will always be looking at a two-front war. This is part of the reason why, despite the projections, this is not going to be a short conflict that'll be relatively or a relatively quick conflict that'll be over in six months, as was sadly predicted. It'll be the furthest thing from it. Please note, though, alliances by themselves are not a bad thing. That's not what I'm trying to paint the picture of, that the alliances is what got them in trouble. By definition, the alliance wasn't the issue. What was is the fact that they were secret alliances. That was the key weakness, or go so far as to say the tragic weakness here, is that secrecy was the problem. The Triple Alliance powers, Germans, Austro-Hungarians, and Italy, they knew they had one another's back in case any other country invaded them from either side. But there wasn't a lot of confirmation that their potential enemies had any kind of an alliance going, when in fact they did. The Entente powers, France, Great Britain, Russia, they had one another's backs. But they had no confirmation whether there was ever any serious agreement between Germany and any other country, Austro-Hungary and any other country, or Italy for that matter. So secrecy is what was going to turn out to be the problem here. Please remember that these alliances was to help protect the land that each governed within their own country, but also worldwide, as the era of imperialism is still with us at this time. Imperialism meaning the colonization of foreign lands for the economic benefit of the mother country. Colonization is what has been going on since the discovery of the Americas going way back to 1492. And the acquisition of land by a handful of European powers and by extension the United States of America was moving ahead and was continuing to consume more land as time marched on long after Columbus took his last breath. Consider that the globe, the world itself, 70% of our planet is water. Sure, we can use the water to our benefit as much as possible, but unless there's a, have a lot of resources in terms of money and other instruments, you can't live on water. You have to live on the land. 
which means out of this entire globe we call Earth, only 30% is actually land. So for that reason, of that 30% of that's land, by 1800, that handful of European powers, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, France, and Great Britain, as well as the United States, owned 35% of all land on Earth. That was in 1800. 114 years later, at the outbreak of World War I, 114 years later, the percentage of land that was owned by Europe and the United States skyrocketed from 35% to 84%. It's an astonishing figure, as reported in the Foreign Affairs Journal on March and April of 2013. 84% of all land on earth is in a hand is under the control of a handful of European countries and the United States. It's an incredible statistic. Now, while you sit back and I would imagine you're quickly doing the math, you're thinking, well, that does leave 16% at least for the rest of the population, think again, because on the, the continent of Antarctica consumes 8.9% of that remaining 16% of the Earth's landmass. That leaves 7.1% of the world's dry land, quote unquote, left for the taking. A common denominator of those hodgepodges of land worldwide is that for the, for, the, for the purposes of Europe and the United States, it wasn't worth taking. It was of no value to the United States or the r- ruling European countries. So that again, between the mindsets of realism versus complex interdependence, between that juxtapose those two schools of thought, the way world leaders cooperate with one another or not, coupled with these secret secret alliances on top of a massive land grab that has been ongoing, that set the entire stage for what would eventually become a world conflict. The actual spark that lit everything up was a, literally a key event, and it was the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914. The Archduke from Austro-Hungary, who was going to succeed the throne, he was parading around the streets of downtown Sarajevo in Serbia. And it was there that he was demonstrating that if Serbia or any of the other cities, countries, try to push out Austrian influence, it's not going to happen. Austria was exerting its influence on its southern neighbors. And the parade, more or less, was kind of like an in-your-face that we can do this. A group called the Black Hand Society found out about the arrival of the Archduke and his wife, Sophia, and took it upon themselves to also make a show of force that you, Austria, are not going to send your minions down here and attempt to intimidate us. Gustav Princip, 
is the individual that assassinated the Archduke and his wife. He was not the only assassin that was trained that day to take out the Archduke and his wife. Rather, he was somewhat down the list that by the time the motorcade got to where Princip's location was, the Archduke and his wife should have already been dead, but it didn't happen. Gustav saw the limousine coming at a distance, realized, of course, they were still very much alive. As the motorcade was nearing where Princip was standing, and would be another would-be assassin took a hand grenade and rolled it underneath the limousine where the Archduke and his wife were driving. But the hand grenade bounced off the tire and rolled back behind the limousine and blew up the car behind it. The limousine driver, of course, easily and quickly putting two and two together, recognized that most likely that hand grenade was destined or bomb was destined for his passengers in the back, immediately gunned it out of the parade and accelerated quickly to get out of the area. But as he advanced forward, driving the limousine as fast as he could manage, he actually was driving a lot closer to where Princip was standing. But because of the commotion and other vehicles, the limousine passed Princip. But then it took a hard left. The limousine driver was smart enough to know that if he had taken a right, he would eventually brought him to a bridge. And the bridge would have more or less made them an easy target. So he purposely avoided that. Going straight was the parade's intended route. He was also afraid of staying committed to that route, considering this attempt on the lives of his passengers. So he made the decision to take a left. The drawback here is that when the limousine started to ride up the hill, remember, we're talking 1910s automotive technology here. There's no automatic transmissions. The technology is still extremely rudimentary. And as the limousine started to go up the hill, the engine died. He's threw the limousine driver threw the clutch in, put it into neutral, put the stick into neutral, went to crank the car to start it again. But as he did so, the limousine started rolling backwards. And it rolled backwards far enough that Princip was able to take a clear clean shot at the Archduke and his wife. The Archduke of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was dead. And now the world stunned in reaction to this brutal show of force. It is perhaps beyond ironic that the license plate on the limousine was A111 space, excuse me, A I I I, three I's, space 118. If you take that license plate, get rid of the A, turn the I's to the number one with a little bit of spacing, what you have is 111118, which as for right, Historical savvy listeners, as you know, that will be the date in which the guns will finally silence over the after the most brutal war in human history will be fought for four years. The 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month 
of 20, excuse 20, listen to me, 1918. So Austria demanded that the Serbian government do everything it could to bring those members of the Black Hand Society to justice. Serbia would do nothing of the sorts. She wanted no part of cooperating with Austria. You sent your boy and his wife down here. This is what happened. That's on you. Austria double-checked her alliance with Germany and with Italy, got the silent nod of approval, and from there, she gave Serbia 30 days to hand over the assassins, and his, the assassin and his whole group. Needless to say, that didn't happen. And on July 28th, 1914, is when World War I essentially broke out. Now, when I say break out, it's not as though the guns are immediately and cannons are blazing on that day forward. But June, July 28th, retrospectively, is when historians, after countless hours of analysis, had determined there really was no turning back away from war after that date. So in my world history class, we focus more on what was going on internationally because of the world history podcast, because this is the American history podcast. I do want to take a step away from now from the European continent, come back to the United States to look at what America specifically was doing as these events are, are unfolding. At this point, we have the 28th president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, who is monitoring these events closely. He's America's only first, to date still, only PhD president. The American position was one of going to be a course of neutrality. He agreed, however, to, to sell goods to either side that wishes to make purchases for purposes of this impending war. So for that reason, it was an economic boost to the United States. But we took initially a course of neutrality. And I repeated that for a second time for a reason, because this is liable to come back to bite us. Woodrow Wilson was also smart enough to know that the war could engulf many more countries than initially thought. So we also took on a policy of what we call preparedness, where he was making financial, political, and other types of efforts to be ready to commit America to one side or the other, depending upon how long the war ensues and what it entails as it unfolds. While World War I was beginning in its first couple of years, President Wilson was reelected for a second term in 1916 based on the premise that he kept your boys home. He kept America's boys out of those foreign conflicts. That would get him reelected. He would, in November of 1916, he would then take the oath of office the following March, March 4th, 1917, and then he would commit American soldiers on April 6th, 1917. Please note, though, the other reason for the initial course of a reluctant course of policy preparedness that President Wilson was engaging in is because essentially there was nothing else the United States could do. The United States had the 17th largest army in the world. 
our entire armed forces was smaller than Great Britain's forces that she lost in just one battle. We had less than a quarter of a million soldiers, period, much less with any kind of military experience. So with World War I breaking out, yes, the response initially was one of euphoria, perhaps because the tension finally gave, perhaps because now a resolution will be determined between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Balkan states to the south. But as we know, that wasn't going to be. So as we as World War I unfolds, I want to also take a step way up here with the camera, if you will, and get a macro view of this conflict as it unfolds to unpack four different terms that are used through, to describe this conflict and eventually World War II, not to give away that part of the story. But the four terms are grand strategy, strategy, tactics, and logistics. Those are not terms that should be used interchangeably. Admittedly, the average person might think that that's four different ways of saying the same thing, but in fact, they're distinctly different. Simply put, grand strategy is foreign policy. America's grand strategy was a policy of preparedness and a policy of neutrality. That was our grand strategy. That was the foreign policy. Therefore, we don't need to worry about initially strategy, tactics, and logistics but the warring powers do. And the easiest way to explain this to strategy, tactics, and logistics is to imagine, if you will, two different countries. Let's just call them A and B. A wants to conquer B. Strategy is what the generals in country A need to determine how to get to country B to launch a surprise attack. No general worth their weight is going to announce ahead of time, hey, we're coming and here's the route we're going to come in. It just doesn't work that way. You want to surprise the enemy because the element of surprise more often than not benefits the invading party. So strategy asks, how do we get the soldiers to the point of battle? How do we get to the battlefield? How do we get to the point of where we need to begin to fight? That's strategy. Tactics is, what do you do once you arrive at the battlefield? Do, do we arrive and do a frontal central assault? Good luck with that because most of the time that's not very effective. Do you do the right flank or the right hook strategy where you make it look as though you're attacking with the left side, but you come in from the right side? That's tactics. It's what you do once you get to the battlefield. Adolf Hitler, years from now, Napoleon Bonaparte, many decades back, were master strategists and tacticians. They knew how to get their, their forces to where they needed to fight to deceive the enemy, and they knew how to engage the enemy to ramp up far more wins than losses. That's strategy and tactics. Where both of them failed miserably was in logistics. Logistics is responsible for how to maintain the forces on the battlefield. Logistics is the continuing bringing up of supplies, potable water, food, ammunition, clothing, medical supplies. It's your supply line. You can't let your army advance too fast. That's poor strategy. Because once they begin to start fighting, if they run out of equipment, it's not as though they can say, stop the battle. We got to run to the local Walmart and pick up some, 
ammunition and everything else we need. It doesn't work that way. So logistics is moving up the supply lines and communication lines to keep them as short as possible. So again, a quick recap, grand strategy is foreign policy. Strategy asks, how do we get to the battlefield? Tactics asks, what do we do once we get there? Logistics asks, how do we keep you supplied? How do we keep the supply lines open, clear, and running? All of this, none of this is new, excuse me, anywhere in this modern 20th century that we're talking about. Those four terms go back to ancient history. But what we're seeing for the first time is the way that these are going to play out truly in the industrial age. Yes, technically the American Civil War was fought in or post the Industrial Revolution. But World War I is what we call the first major conflict in the industrial age. And the reason that we were considerate is because of the indiscriminate number of lives that are going to be lost by people who were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. When I speak about the lives lost, remember that for the next four years, once those guns begin to blaze, the world is going to lose 5,000 people a day. The Again, as I mentioned earlier, the statistics, the atrocities are just horrific in this climate. So what does fighting look like in the industrial age now? Well, unlike the American Civil War, was the last major conflict where a soldier before he fired his weapon would need to look to his right and to his left in order to make sure that he had an escape route to see that once I fire my weapon, I need to either drop in my place or I need to run because the most advanced weapon still took a couple of seconds to reload in order to fire again. So if an American Civil War soldier on either side is trying to shoot the enemy, if the enemy is by himself, number one, you don't always know that. So as the soldier sneaking up on the enemy soldier fires his weapon, he better make sure it hits the target. Because if it doesn't, that intended target is going to wheel around ready to use his weapon against you. Once again, you don't get to stand up and say, hold on here, I got to restock and reload. Just give me a few seconds. Again, it doesn't work that way. You got to make sure you make a connection. Let's assume that the soldier is successful in dropping the enemy. But how do you know when that enemy drops that there weren't other soldiers sleeping on the ground or staying undercover? And all of a sudden they rise up and start shooting at the direction that the fire came from. That's the reason why, again, you need to leave that area immediately. That's not a concern now in the First World War. Because of the advances in machine gun, techno gun technology to now having the idea of a machine gun, a rapid reloading and firing weapon, one machine gunner in World War I is more effective and had more firepower than 80 riflemen in the American Civil War. This is the reason why we are going to lose so many lives. So that machine gun blazing away, the soldier now is no longer concerned about whether he can run, needs to run to the right or the left. As long as he has that magazine fully loaded, 
He can continue to let those bullets rattle through the chamber and continue firing away by keeping his finger on the trigger. And he essentially owns the arc that, that, that those bullets can cover as he fights and beats back the enemy. How do you protect yourself? How could any one army stand up against that, even if they have the exact same type of machine gun? Where do you go on the battlefield to protect yourself from such horrific, horrendous weapons? And I'm asking in this way because what I'm trying to show is a trajectory, sadly, of the advancement in technology and in some cases using age-old basic techniques in order to protect the human being, to protect themselves on the battlefield. So the, knowing that you're facing machine guns, there's nowhere on land you can go unless you go down. And it's no surprise with the advent of machine gun, we get into the world of what's known as trench warfare. The trenches is where the soldiers will spend more time digging themselves in than almost any other activity for the next four years. But while the trench is, let's face it, very effective at keeping the individual safe, when the soldiers are in the trench, what's one thing that they are not doing? You guessed it, they're not advancing. They're not moving forward. How do you get the soldiers out of their trenches? How does the enemy bait them, force them to get out of the trenches and to resume fighting? That's what we're going to take a look at as we begin the next podcast in the next part of the American History series, American History 2, as we dive further in to the First World War. And I invite you again to come back for the remaining episodes so that one can see this sad series of steps that humans take to not only protect themselves, but to also try to kill the enemy. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.